This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Thursday, June 9th. We are, of course, in the middle of the World Pork Expo. Had the chance to get out to the state fairgrounds in Des Moines yesterday, catch up with folks in the pork industry. And we'll be hearing from some of them here over the next couple of weeks as that industry continues to rebound and grow post-COVID. But today, we are going to be talking inflation impacting construction projects with Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, here in segment two. And in segment three, we're going to turn our focus to the cattle market. Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company will join us. We're heading into the summer. It's grilling season, but prices are high for everything. What's that going to do to consumer demand? Well, Chris Swift will share his insights later in the show. And then at the end, there was a letter from 12 Democratic senators encouraging support for Proposition 12, the California law that would bar the sale of eggs and meat from animals raised in conventional farrowing facilities. And we're going to talk about that in segment four. Before we get into all of that, how trade is in the news. This past week, we saw the Biden administration roll back a tariff on solar panels. And in doing so, he highlighted some of the challenges that the current use of trade law creates in the world of international trade. To talk about how this all works, joining me now is Gary Winslet. He's a political science professor at Middlebury College and the author of Competitiveness and Death, Trade and Politics in Cars, Beef and Drugs. Professor Winslet, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. Let's give a quick summary here. The Biden admin rolled back this tariff on Chinese solar panels. Gary, why'd they do that? Uh, so the Biden administration is really caught between two things they really want to do around solar panels. The first thing they want to do is they want to increase, you know, deployment of those panels for all kinds of environmental and climate change reasons. But then what they also want is they want to have a lot of those solar panels made in the United States. Um, and that's, that's kind of a tricky dilemma you're in, right? Because if you think about it, a lot of the things that we import, we do because it's cheaper to get it from abroad. You know, most of the, the clothes that our, your listeners are wearing right now are imported from like, places like Bangladesh. Um, and so there is some tension between really wanting to make something here, but also wanting it to be really, really cheap. Um, and so that's the, the basic setup. And so what, what was going on is that, uh, I'm sorry, did you have a question? Well, I was just going to say, so that was their goal. And so to do that, they put this tariff yeah. on imported panels to raise the price, but now it's going away. How has their thinking changed? Right. Well, so what happened was um, there ended up being this Department of Commerce investigation into some of the big companies that were importing solar panels. The problem is the way the trade remedy law works, if the decision had gone in a particular direction, a lot of the companies who would be building solar panel projects right now would end up having to pay a retroactive 240% tariff on those panels. So imagine if I, if you were, you know, thinking about putting solar panels on your house and I said, Hey, um, you know, 
it may be the case in a few months if the government makes a particular decision that you have to go back and pay a 240% tax on those. You probably just wouldn't do it, right? You, you would just say, um, I'll wait till you figure out what's going on. Um, well, so that, that happened in a massive way. And so there was this huge sort of freeze up in the deployment of solar projects, um, which, you know, it's, it's not good. And so to try to unfreeze that, uh, they basically announced that um, you know, they're not going to be implementing these new tariffs on solar panel projects. So this basically allows importers here in the U.S. to buy Chinese panels, bring them over, and not be confronted with that potential 240% well, hit not, coming down the line. Is that right? Not quite Chinese panels. A lot of the producers had gone to other Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, um, some, some of those countries like Thailand, and so there's a lot of importers to bring in panels from those countries without getting hit by these new tariffs. Gotcha. But these tariffs were asked to be in place by one company here in the U.S., and they effectively locked down the entire solar industry for, for how, yeah. many, how many years, Gary? Yes. Yeah, uh, it was Auxin, um, A-U-X-I-N, and it's based out of California. It's this very small company um, who's really not a major player in the market at all. But the way trade remedy law works, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it was put in place by Congress without a ton of thought into broader geopolitical or climate change or other sort of strategic objectives. And so, you know, the, the Commerce Department's hands were in some ways tied, um, you know, and, and so they, they kind of had to bring forward this um, investigation into these components. Um, and so uh, what the Biden administration basically did was an executive order is try to sort of unfreeze that. Now, I will say the Biden administration could have just allowed a lot of these tariffs to lapse on February 6th anyway. Uh, they were scheduled to expire, and all the Biden administration had to do was just not re-implement them, um, and they chose to re-implement them. And so in some ways, this is the Biden administration kind of trying to clean up something they at least contributed to. So these tariff rules have caused a lot of market distortions, and I know there are several other tariffs currently pending out there under review. Gary, do you think this administration is going to roll back any others here over the summer? Well, I hope so. I mean, this is one of the things a lot of us have been advocating for for a while. Now, a lot of these tariffs are not the primary cause of inflation, but they are adding to it. Um, you know, they are making things more expensive, and that's really hard on consumers. And so I would hope that they would roll back um, a bunch of these you know, they're, they're taxes that make things unnecessarily expensive for consumers. Um, and people are really feeling the pinch. You know, if it's 8.3% inflation, but you only got a 4% pay increase last year, well, you actually got a 4.3% pay cut. And that's really, really hard. And so I, w I would like to see them cut more of these tariffs and help people out a little more. Gary, are the trade laws that we've got right now being used well by this administration, in your opinion? Um, no, <laughs> frankly, no. Um, I, I think that they've done too much to, um, not favor consumers enough. Uh, you know, sometimes, so you want to be able to think about producers. You want to help people, you know, have jobs and stuff, but you also want to think about consumers, particularly in time of high inflation. And at least in my view, this administration has not taken seriously enough the, um, threat of inflation, the cost of inflation, and the ways in which trade protectionism play into that.
Yeah, and that impacts every other market that we deal with. We'll be talking later about both construction and beef, two markets clearly impacted right. by inflation in this period. Gary, you've done a lot of great research on this topic. Can you tell our listeners how they can keep up with you and the work that you're doing in this trade space? Um, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Gary Winslet. Um, yeah, and anytime they want to email me, uh, my email is gwinslet at middlebury.edu. Um, so I'm, I'm available and, and sort of out in the public talking about these things. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. Professor Willett always tweeting interesting ideas there on his Twitter feed. And stay with us. Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation, will join us next to talk construction prices throughout this summer. So stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Sam Wilson, a meatpacker from New York, supplied meat to American troops while they fought the British. He stamped the barrels with U.S. for the United States, and soldiers began to joke that the meat supplies came from Uncle Sam. Since then, Uncle Sam has always referred to the federal government. This agricultural history is brought to you by the American Ag Network. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria. Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. By the year 2050, the world's population is expected to reach 10 billion people, and that means a third more mouths to feed with an even smaller rural workforce. On behalf of the American Ag Network, we'd like to thank farmers and ranchers and those working throughout the industry of agriculture for their endless efforts to improve efficiency and sustainability. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america this is mike pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world keeping america's farmers and ranchers informed on aoa now back to mike pearson 
Well, folks, thanks for joining us today here for AOA. You know, it has been said, well, it's been said a lot here over the past year as inflation has started to rally, that inflation is too many dollars chasing too few of goods. And with the infrastructure spending that was authorized by Congress this past year, we are seeing that scenario play out in the world of construction as a lot of folks in this country prepare to build out infrastructure following that uh, Infrastructure and Job Act that was passed last year. Well, Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, highlighted the challenges this could create for communities and counties looking to make use of these construction dollars here in the next year. I wanted to bring him on to talk about this, get us thinking about how this massive amount of spending might actually not get us as much as we thought it would when it was passed last year. Mike, thanks for joining us here on the show today. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me, Mike. You know, I think for our listeners, it's no surprise that input costs have been climbing precipitously. You've seen that on the construction side. Mike, how have prices changed just over the past year or so? Quite quite profoundly. You know, the, the American Road and Transportation Builders Association, they have a, a scorecard where they track not only the overall cost of construction inflation, or I call infrastructure inflation, but also the, the various components that make up that. And according to their estimates, the, the cost of overall of construction of road and bridge projects and infrastructure projects has increased 21% over the last year. So you know, essentially what that means in simple terms is a, a $1 million bridge replacement now will cost $1.21 million. A $100 million portfolio of work that say a state Department of Transportation may endeavor to do now costs $121 million. And so that's, that's a significant increase in a quite short period of time. Uh, obviously some of the big components of that Asphalt, a 56% increase over the last year. Uh, diesel fuel is a big component of construction. Obviously, the machinery that's used runs on our diesel engines, 70% increase over the last year. Gasoline, 53%. And uh, you, know, you, you see you know, the machinery itself and concrete, and those, those things, they might have, their, they have more modest increases, things like 11% or 15%. But it all contributes to this 21% increase in the cost of building and constructing our infrastructure. Uh, the good news, as you mentioned, we've, we have some additional resources being deployed for some of these lingering transportation projects, but the bad news is that dollar is not stretching as further as it normally would, and so we're not getting as big bang for our buck. Well, Mike, and I was curious about that as well. When that Infrastructure and Job Act passed last year, there were a number of projects that were, quote, funded to completion. And I'm wondering now with this rise in construction costs, are those projects now short 20, 30 percent of the funds needed to actually get to completion? I, I anticipate uh, in, in very short order, we're going to hear a lot from federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies, uh, these kind of testimonials where they say, well, we originally were planning to build this project now, but we are going to have to defer it until sometime in the future. Or it originally was going to cost this, and now we have to go back to the well because it's now going to cost this and get additional funding. We're going to hear that quite frequently uh, over and over again uh, for the foreseeable future. And, and obviously, that's a, that's a real challenge that we're going to have as we try to improve and maintain our infrastructure.
It certainly is, Mike. And of course, there are the big infrastructure projects, those locks and dam issues along our major waterways, the port issues. But for our audience, for a lot of us here in rural America, the big challenge is, is simply rural infrastructure, bridges, culverts, railroad areas. As these counties and municipalities look to make these, these new decisions with these higher prices, I know the Soy Transportation Coalition has already researched some alternatives to help stretch those costs a little bit. Could you talk about what sort of bridge replacements options are out there for these counties and towns? Yeah, the unfortunate reality is the area of the country where the condition of our roads and bridges is most dilapidated or degraded also happens to be the area of the country where resources are the most scarce or on the decline, and that's rural America. We've got a lot of roads and particularly bridges that are deficient. They need to be upgraded, and and so this is something that will always be a priority area for the Soy Transportation Coalition because that's the mode of transportation that's most relatable and conceptual to the farmers that we serve. There are rural infrastructure, our roads and bridges. And so we have this initiative that uh, we started it last year where we highlighted a number of concepts and the report that we issued is called the Top 20 Innovations for Rural Bridge Replacement and Repair. So there's 10 concepts featured for replacing rural bridges in a more innovative way, 10 concepts for, re for repairing rural bridges. And for a lot of these replacement concepts and innovations, it can result in a rural bridge being replaced for $100,000 versus $300,000, $500,000, a, a considerable cost savings. And so we, we issued this report last year to kind of highlight some of these innovative concepts that are out there that do exist, and none of these are theoreticals or hypotheticals. These, these are concepts that do exist. They have been utilized. You can actually drive to them. You can drive over them. And, and see them for yourselves. But unfortunately, there's certain areas of the country that haven't heard of them. And so we need, there's a real education opportunity for this. But what we decided to do this year, working with a number of state soybean associations, is we're providing some seed money to counties that are expressing interest to help provide some funding to help underwrite some of the costs of that pre-engineering and design expense that they have to incur if they're going to replace a bridge. Uh, the two conditions are, number one, you have to use one of these concepts featured in that top 20 report. And number two, it has to be a rural bridge that accommodates, that farmers use to transport soybeans or soy products. So a, a, a downtown bridge wouldn't be a good, con good, wouldn't be a good candidate bridge. But those in rural areas where soybeans are grown and transported would be. So it's always a good day to encourage stewardship of the taxpayer dollar, but it's particularly a good day to do that when you've got infrastructure inflation of 21%. So we, we're really hoping to generate some additional enthusiasm for this initiative this year. So, Mike, I know we've got a lot of county supervisors that tune into this program. If they're curious about investigating how they could use some of these bridge uh, repair and replacement ideas, how can they get an application? How can they move on to the next steps here to secure some of that seed money for these uh, evaluations? Well, we, we're, we like to keep things as simple and straightforward as possible. So people can just go to our website at soytransportation.org. My contact information is, is, is displayed right there. They can reach out to me and we can have a discussion. Mike, as you get out there and talk about these issues, have you been hearing more from, from counties or cities looking for new ideas? Have these cost pressures encouraged them to, to innovate a little bit? It's really forcing them to do that. And, you know, sometimes you, you run into people who they, they are more naturally forward thinking and innovative, but then you also run a lot of times into folks who 
they just it's they just like the way they've always done things for 20 years, and they it's hard to deviate from that. But you know, when the fact is you've got a 21% infrastructure inflation, even if you're getting additional funding, uh, a county engineer told me recently, you know, this additional funding from all of these sources will amount to about 18% more revenue that he has to utilize for improving his county system. But when you've got 21% cost inflation, you know, that, that additional resources are being more than overwhelmed. So it's really forcing people to have to look at new and innovative approaches. And one of the things about this report, it, it features concepts that will produce notable cost savings, but it doesn't compromise safety. In order to make its way onto that list, it had to be valid from an engineering perspective. Otherwise, it wouldn't have made its way onto the list. So that was very critical to highlight those concepts as well that, that maintain safety. Absolutely. They work. They're in practice. Now you can go see them and they keep folks safe. Mike, I want to look out through this summer. This construction boom hasn't quite gotten started. We've already seen these costs jump so much. As the shovels start moving dirt, do you think this inflation and construction is going to intensify? You would only expect it's going to apply even more pressure um, on on upward pressure on prices and costs. Um, you know, we're, we already have a labor shortage, and so all, there's only so many people who can do this work, and there's only so much materials that can actually be utilized. So one of the things that I think will be important as we move forward is having some flexibility in when these resources get get spent. Clearly, we're, we're very anxious to get these infrastructure projects built, but if we have all of these resources simultaneously um, deployed, it's only going to make the problem of infrastructure, infrastructure inflation more pronounced, and so we certainly have to promote uh, having some flexibility on that. Absolutely, we do, folks. That's Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. To secure that seed money, visit their website, soytransportation.org. Mike, thank you so much for joining us and bringing this issue up for more discussion. Good to be with you. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company will join us here in segment three. We're going to talk about the cattle market. Again, what are consumers going to do as inflation keeps taking bites out of their pocketbooks? Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger, larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. 
This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. You know, this show, I did not intend it to be a show about the impacts of inflation, but gosh, that's kind of what it's turning into between tariffs and construction. And of course, elevated fuel prices, we are seeing inflation impact every area of our life. And I was curious about how that could impact the beef market as we go through this summer. To help shed a little insight on this is Chris Swift, owner of Swift Trading Company and author of the Shooting the Bull newsletter. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Hello, Mike. How are you doing today? Well, not too bad at all, sir, but I'm curious. We've got Memorial Day in the rearview mirror. That's the unofficial kickoff to summer grilling season. And Chris, I want to know, how are you feeling about consumer demand here in this country as we look out over the summer? You know, Mike, I think consumer demand is going to be steady uh, as we uh, deal with the higher inflationary prices of gas and other items there. We might see the public stay more closer to home. If they stay closer to home, they tend to eat better. We've seen that throughout the years. So even though we understand inflation is impacting them, and it might actually be a little deterrent to the restaurant business, we think that it'll be just stable. Beef prices have come down just a little bit at the retail grocery store, and if they can keep them at this level, then I think beef consumption would remain just about stable. And, uh, of course, we've got to talk fuel prices. That's the biggest component of anybody's bottom line as fuel price continues to rise. Chris, do you think consumers might start to transition to ground beef or perhaps pork? Is that a risk as we look out over the summer? Well, it is, but I think that's already been done. And we've been dealing with these inflationary measures for several months now, if not over a year. So a lot of these shifts in discretionary spending have already taken place, and we're still seeing the beef prices hold up relatively well. I think where we need to look and see where the real damage is being is to the cattle feeder. The cattle feeder is being squeezed with margins so terribly with not only the cost of the feeder cattle and corn, but the fuel as well. Labor shortages has put them in a really tight uh, crunch right now. It has, Chris. And feeders, of course, that's they're no stranger to that tight cash crunch position. They've been in it for a while. That sector has certainly struggled. How can producers who have cattle on feed right now, perhaps unhedged, maybe, maybe ready for delivery end of summer, how should they be managing that risk given the volatility we're seeing in the grain market today? You know, there's all different kinds of ways to do it, but but I think really if you look at something that is going to not expose you to unlimited risk, um, if we look at just buying a put option, because we're, we're not real sure. We don't see this as a bearish environment, although it's not a bullish environment either. So really all you're trying to protect against is a similar black swan or an event that comes in out of the blue that we really didn't know about. If we look at what we've got on feed and what we've been slaughtering, it's a tremendous number of cows. I feel greatly that if the cow slaughter were to decline just a little bit, it would expose the shortage of fed cattle that we have on feed right now, and it could make for a very quick shortage of cattle in the future if we do start slowing that cow kill a little bit. All right. Now, that is an interesting point, Chris, and I saw you mention that in yesterday's newsletter, so I'm glad you brought it up. Are we still killing this elevated number of cows, even with marketings being where they are, according to the last cattle on feed report? 
Yes, we are. The I think the only changes that we'll see is in the far west, where we have seen a lot of the cow slaughter slow. They have had enough rain in some areas there that have allowed for uh, some pastures to heal back and some cows to be kept back. I think our biggest worry right now is Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, and Texas primarily. If they were to start to liquidate heavily, then it might continue with that cow slaughter up. But I think by the time you get into the third quarter, you will have seen so much of the cow slaughter having taken place that it will normally naturally just because you got fewer cows it will start to slow as well all right so as we watch for that cow slaughter to slow down either because they get some rain across the drought territories or they're they're just out of mama cows to cull when would you expect to see that slowdown happen you said the third week in in june uh, the third quarter. No, I think it'll start about the third quarter. So I think if they, you know, once you get into the uh, to the uh, fall of the year, that's when things might slow down just a little bit. And probably of more interest than anything, as we continue to push forward in like that, if there were ever an opportunity to try to expand. So all we're talking about right now is just a slowing of the cow slaughter. But if you ever start holding those cows back again for some kind of re, uh, expansion there, then you've really got a shortage of cattle out there. Absolutely, we do. That is a fact for sure, Chris. I'm curious, looking out again over the summer into that third and fourth quarter, with all this cow kill happening, when do you think we'll start to see fed cattle prices react to a decline in in calves? I, you might already start being seeing that right now. We, we've shored up the basis to a positive, excuse me, to a negative basis in the June and August contracts and still kind of running, have been running that way in the October and out. So if you look at the way the fat cattle market is priced, it seems to be priced accordingly to we have ample plenty of cattle on feed right now and we have a, a slaughter that's very level. But out into the future, we'll have two different things. We'll have fewer cattle, and we'll have greater packing capacity. Even with the big four not expanding any, there are other expansions out there taking place that, that can kill several thousand head a week out there and make a big difference when you start going after inventory to make sure that plant runs at 100%. All right, Chris, that is a good piece of information for those cattle feeders who have been struggling here since that Holcomb fire in Kansas. But I'm curious, as I look at feeder cattle prices, we've got the August right now at 176 and change. We're looking at corn in the December over $7. Chris, how are folks making this pencil? I have to believe, and there's no real proof or evidence to it yet, but I have to believe that some participants are now privy to the beef sales, so therefore not dependent solely upon the sale of the fed steer, but somehow are in a uh, profit-sharing potential with the beef sales. It allows for a little bit greater price to pay production of that uh, steer than if just selling on the hoof. Gotcha. So making money on the back end, that might help make a little bit of sense. As you look out in this feeder cattle market, I mean, we are elevated all the way through November 177 up through 180. Chris, could the feeder cattle market move much higher here as, as we get into this area with declining cow numbers? Well, the, the answer to that always is yes. It can move anywhere under the sun. Um, what we have to look at is how much more can the pressure can the cattle feeder take. So outside of vertical integration where you are still marketing that inventory on the hoof or on the rail, you're still not able to make any kind of profits on it right now with the input costs. Those inside of the beef, they're just losing margin right now. 
So we know that the uh, box fee prices have not been rallying very strongly. We know that all the input costs have continued to be rising. So I believe those within vertical integration have just seen a shrinking of their margin, uh, still making some profits to that. Clearly, somebody out there believes something to be able to continue to pay these premiums over what the cash index is. But over the last couple of days, we've seen the cash index move up, and we've seen sales recently uh, be anywhere from five to six higher, knowing we've got a couple of really big video sales coming up within the next couple of weeks. A couple of big video sales and, of course, an update on corn tomorrow from the USDA. Chris, ahead of this WASDE report, do end users need to be securing any of their feed needs or do you just let it ride and see what happens? No, I, I think this is way too crucial just to let anything ride to see what happens. I believe you've got to be very proactive in owning your corn, and especially with it seeming like we may not quite have gotten out the 92 million acres that we thought we were going to if we didn't, as well as potentially some yield loss to it from planting a little bit late, the European situation where they're not getting hardly any grain movement out of there and we're very skeptical on production to it, we are going to need every single kernel of corn and bean that we produce this year. Yes, indeed we are. Chris, I know you like to talk about the cattle market, but you keep an eye there on the lean hogs. We've had some pretty big weakness this week. What happened in the hog market? I, I'm unsure, really, because the index has moved up a little bit, but I think it's just a seasonal tendency. We tend to see the hog market top somewhere around the 1st of June and then actually trade lower all the way into the 1st of August time frame. So potentially some of that. I, I don't lean it towards uh, consumers not buying pork or anything. I just don't think that it's a roaring market right now, and, and there is a potential for some expansion after, I think, close to nine quarters in a row of liquidation in the hog markets, you might start to see just a little bit of expansion. Chris, do you think that's true even with the elevated price of construction? Have the margins been there for pork producers to write the check to build an expensive new building this year, do you think? No, and they may not have to build a new building. Remember, the hog production has gone down tremendously. So I don't know that you have to have any new facilities out there to increase that production. Somebody has uh, five to eight hog houses. Maybe they've had one that's been down. Uh, they repair it, put it back again, and then off to the races they go. That makes sense. Bringing that unutilized inventory back into production. Chris, before we let you go, what's the cash trade expected to do to be on fat cattle this week? Have we had much action yet or do you expect it to come today and tomorrow? Uh, probably today and tomorrow. I think 135, 136 will buy most anything that there is. And, and looking at June here, currently at 137, that would make perfect sense as you're in, you know, in theory in delivery for the June contract. Um, they're not going to move too far away from one another. And I, I could see the packer having to pay just a little bit more money for cattle, and especially if they want quality cattle. All right, Chris. Hey, tell our listeners, where can they go to keep up to date with the work you're doing and the research you're providing here in the cattle sector? I appreciate that. They're always welcome to go visit swifttrading.co or shootingthebull.com, and we'll be glad to help any way that we can. Fantastic, folks. Be sure to check that out. Chris always is publishing interesting information and a little insight into the cattle sector. Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company, thanks so much for joining us on AOA Today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. 12 Democratic senators wrote a letter in support of Proposition 12 earlier this week. I'll have some comments on that from the World Pork Expo when AOA returns. Hi. 
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Did you know Henry Ford's Model T was designed to run on either gasoline or corn ethanol? After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop. Over half of all the corn grown in the United States is grown in four states, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and Nebraska. A typical year has about 800 kernels in 16 rows. Corn will always have an even number of rows on each cob. One variety of corn grown in Peru has kernels so large that they are eaten individually. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Looking back into the history of agriculture, the first major pork packing plant was started in Cincinnati, Ohio by Alicia Mills in the year 1818. Nicknamed the Porkopolis, 85,000 head of pigs were processed at this plant each year. This ag history is brought to you by the American Ag Network. Sam Wilson, a meat packer from New York, supplied meat to American troops while they fought the British. He stamped the barrels with U.S. for the United States, and soldiers began to joke that the meat supplies came from Uncle Sam. Since then, Uncle Sam has always referred to the federal government. This agricultural history is brought to you by the American Ag Network. It's believed the very first official cattle drive took place in 1779. The Spanish joined the American Revolution, wanting to push out British rivals. Louisiana Spanish governor asked Texas for cattle to help feed their troops, and 2,000 head of cattle were gathered and sent to Louisiana. This agricultural history is brought to you by the American Ag Network. With sustainability as agriculture's latest focus, ag is actually one of the few industries that works as both a source and a sink for greenhouse gases. Almost all other sectors in society only produce greenhouse gases, but there are two sectors that are both sources and sinks, and that's forestry and agriculture. These land use sectors take on more carbon than they emit. These are Ag Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. In 1964, the Food Stamp Act was signed to fight poverty. Now known as SNAP or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, it actually stems from the 1930s when it helped to stimulate the economy by encouraging the buying of surplus foods. Blue stamps were designated to purchasing surplus foods by USDA, and the color orange continues to signify the commitment to end U.S. hunger. This Ag History is brought to you by the American Ag Ag Network. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. 
Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, yesterday I had the opportunity to head to the state fairgrounds here in Des Moines to visit the World Pork Expo. And one of the topics that was under conversation quite a bit yesterday was Proposition 12. This is the uh, the the law in California that was passed here in 2018, was supposed to go into effect January 1st of this year. And this is the law that, would, that did establish a minimum space requirement of square feet for calves raised for veal, breeding pigs, and egg-laying hens. And importantly for this conversation, Prop 12 banned the sale of animals that didn't of meat from animals that didn't comply with the confinement set out in this law. This has created a, a Supreme Court case. In fact, on March 2nd, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court of agreed to hear the National Pork Producers Council lawsuit against the state of California about this law, alleging that it was an unfair and unjust incursion onto producers' rights to grow their production in other states that didn't have this law. The National Pork Producers Council has been preparing for this lawsuit. It's expected to go before the Supreme Court later on this fall. Next week, Michael Formica, the counsel for the National Pork Producers Council, will join the show, and he'll talk about what sort of preparations they've been doing. However, the side opposed to Proposition 12 is not the only side that has been preparing. Proponents of this law have also been been active. And in fact, late last week, and this wasn't reported until this week by our friend Jackie Fatka over at Farm Progress, 12 Democratic senators wrote a letter to the Solicitor General of the United States, that's a Solicitor General Prelegar, and they wrote to encourage her to support California's Proposition 12 as this case goes to the courts. This letter struck me for quite a few reasons. One of them was the tone. It is very, very supportive of Proposition 12. In fact, they note that the quote, the purpose of California's Proposition 12 was not only to improve animal welfare, but to phase out extreme methods of farm animal confinement, which also threatened the health and safety of California consumers and increased the risk of foodborne illness and associative negative fiscal impacts on the state of California. Now, that's the claim that hogs hog sows raised in current gestation crates raises here in California. And these senators came out and they said supporting this, or excuse me, opposing this ruling, opposing Proposition 12 um, would allow, I apologize, folks, let me read this quote here. These senators, these 12 Democratic senators say that if Proposition 12 if the NPPC claim is adopted, this ruling would allow large multi-state corporations to evade numerous state laws that focus on harms to their constituents, including those addressing wildlife, wildlife trafficking, climate change, renewable energy, stolen property trafficking, and labor abuses. They go on to say, considering the serious and needless threats to animal welfare and state's authority to protect the well-being of their residents, we urge you to support California's authority and Proposition 12 before the Supreme court thank you for your consideration and illness now NPPC has been doing the work on the scientific research that back up the current modern practices used in animal husbandry in hogs in beef of course in poultry as well and they'll be presenting their case to the Supreme Court but in the meantime these senators are uh, saying that ending Proposition 12 or declaring it unconstitutional would result in violation of state law from multinational corporations. It just really struck me as 
a bit fear-mongery, to put it nicely. And I do want to make sure we all know who signed on to this letter, and we will post this letter and Jackie's comments on our Twitter feed, so do be sure to check that out. But this was signed by names we well know, Diane Feinstein, Alex Padilla, Corey A. Booker, Debbie Stabenow, head of the Senate Ag Committee, signed on to this letter, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, Brian Schatz, Edward J. Markey, Richard Blumenthal, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Gary C. Peters, Ron Wyden, Chris Van Hollen, Robert, Mende Robert Menendez, Patrick Leahy, and Jeffrey A. Merkley all signed on to this bill. So folks, if that's a senator from your state, if you're a constituent, you might want to reach out to them, regardless of how you feel about Proposition 12. These discussions are kicking up right now, and we need to make sure that producers' voices are heard as this case goes before the Supreme Court. Just a reminder, this is California saying we're not going to let Iowa pork producers sell their pork into the state of California unless a California inspector has ensured that this Iowa facility meets the rules set up in that state. That is setting up a big discussion about the Commerce Clause. And folks, just want to be sure you know that. Check our Twitter feed. We'll share this letter. I think it is worth a read, regardless of the side you stand on on this issue. This conversation is going to get hot as this summer drags on and we get closer to the Supreme Court hearing that case. So do, folks, do keep up to date. We'll have more updates on Prop 12 here on the show next week. In the meantime, we also had some trade news I wanted to report. The U.S. trade deficit, the idea that we are importing more than we are exporting, shrank the most on record this past month. We saw the gap in goods and services sales narrowed by $20.6 billion. Effectively, what that means is U.S. sent 20 plus billion dollars more goods to China than we bought from the Chinese. And this, of course, is something we have uh, heard lots of claims about by different presidential administrations, shrinking that trade deficit being important uh, if for, for various reasons. And what we saw here, the trade deficit shrank, not necessarily because of any major factors, but because China shut down, right? They weren't making anything here for the last two months as their cities were in the, the dip depths of their COVID zero policy. And of course, now we expect to see that number rise again as those factories get back into production. Or I should say that was the assumption yesterday. Late last night, it was announced that the city of Shanghai, 27 million people, is re-entering a partial lockdown. Just a reminder, folks, they, here in the last 10 days, just got out of a two-month lockdown. Too much fanfare and celebration in that city because they were getting their food delivered by the government in bags in Shanghai for two months. Well, now they're going to go into lockdown again. We'll see what that's going to do to these markets and to these trade deficit numbers as the summer drags on folks we'll have that news for you here on aoa thanks for tuning in be sure to join us tomorrow we'll talk with mike strands of the national farmers union and our friend narita taylor from the owner operator independent drivers association about the truck laws stay with us for more tomorrow on aoa this is mike pearson thanks for listening to agriculture of america Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. 
With farmers and ranchers being only 2% of the population, agriculture actually employs over 24 million Americans. Agriculture also contributes $1.3 trillion to the national economy. There are just over 2 million farms and ranches in the U.S., averaging in size of about 400 acres, with each farm having the ability to feed 165 people around the world. These are Ag Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. In 1954, the number of tractors on farms surpassed the number of horses and mules for the first time. And with careful stewardship by America's farmers and ranchers, we've seen a 34% decline in erosion of cropland by wind and water since 1982. As for farm products, milk, corn, and soybeans are the top three here in the United States. These Ag Facts are brought to you by the American Ag Network.